On the Media is listener-supported. That is, supported by you listeners. We can use any help you can give. But if you just kicked in a little bit each month, it would really help us plan for the future. So here's the deal. To the first 500 of you to contribute $7 a month, you can get our limited edition Breaking News Consumers Handbook Refrigerator Magnet. And we'll also throw in a mug or a tote bag, your choice. (laughs) We really hope that you'll take a minute to think about what this show means to you and make a contribution. So just go to onthemedia.org slash donate, or even easier, just text OTM to 69866. That's OTM to 69866, and a really simple form will pop up, and you can chip in $7 a month to support our show, and we'll send you one of those shiny new magnets, and thanks. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. So, Bill O'Reilly is gone. The host of cable's most popular show for 16 years, out at Fox News, in the wake of that growing sexual harassment scandal. Of course, this comes after the revelation earlier this month that O'Reilly and 21st Century Fox had paid out $13 million in settlements to five women who had accused him of sexual harassment and or verbal abuse. One word, more than 50 companies have stopped advertising on the O'Reilly factory. And with that news comes a confession. Not his, of course, ours. For 16 years, we at On The Media have had more or less perpetual discussion about how and how much to cover Fox News. We don't have this editorial issue over ripping CNN or MSNBC. In fact, we stand ready to condemn the entirety of cable news with clips and commentary whenever the occasion calls for it. But Fox News presented a challenge. When a station's prime time is driven by concocted conspiracies and controversies, when it does not cover politics so much as instigate politics, the question for a show like ours is not so much where to begin as where to draw the line. We could talk about Fox on every segment, on every show. But should we? As we performed our weekly gut check, is this outrage bad enough? Are the stakes high enough for us to cover? How we admired the persistence of Jon Stewart at The Daily Show, who, when sharing a stage with O'Reilly a few years back, proclaimed Fox News BS Mountain and O'Reilly its mayor. Christmas, the most ubiquitous holiday in the history of mankind, is under threat on Bullshit Mountain because somewhere, somehow, a parade in Tulsa has changed its name from Christmas to holiday. I have come here tonight to plead to the mayor of Bullshit Mountain. He was always scaling B.S. Mountain, like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill, knowing the exertion would never, could never end. So, in the face of multi-million dollar settlements and proliferating charges, the mayor of B.S. Mountain now calls himself a victim as he's pushed out of office with as much as $25 million. And we are compelled to ask, what, if anything, does it signify? Gabriel Sherman is the author of The Loudest Voice in the Room, a biography of Fox founder and mastermind Roger Ailes, who, of course, also left the network in the midst of sexual harassment allegations last year. Sherman says that ditching O'Reilly was a purely financial decision for the Murdochs, who own the network, as advertisers were pulling out and the scandal threatened a multi-billion dollar deal with Sky TV. It certainly wasn't about morals. You know, I think we should point out that Roger Ailes was forced out of the company almost a year ago, and yet many of the lieutenants that ran the network during the period in which he was practicing serial sexual harassment are still in leadership positions. It seems to me that the deciding factors here were advertisers and perhaps regulators that will oversee the deal for Sky TV. Does the audience figure into this much at all? I think the short answer is no. They see situations like the Bill O'Reilly scandal as just more liberal media piling on. In fact, you could argue that the Murdochs are taking a risk 
by taking out Bill O'Reilly, the number one rated host with an incredibly loyal following. He was the Long Island everyman, the blue collar guy from Levittown looking out for the folks. But Bill O'Reilly grew up in a middle-class house, and he went to Harvard and exaggerated his award-winning run at uh, Inside Edition and so forth. I mean, it's a made-up persona. Well, I think, you know, we're talking about Fox News here, and I don't think we would ever let the facts get in the way of a good story. Fox was once the sole owner of the right-wing TV space. No longer. In fact, it's seen fire from the right. Breitbart, for instance, has uh, slammed it for being insufficiently anti-globalist at times. Where does Fox stand now amidst a sea of potentially competitive right-wing media? This is maybe one of the ironies. Fox News, having built a media empire by claiming that mainstream media was biased and not looking out for the audience, Fox News is now subject to the very same line of attack from anti-establishment conservative outlets like Breitbart News or The Daily Caller or Newsmax TV, which is looking to expand. I mean, Fox News is now being subject to the very splintering that fuel its rise to prominence. And so what's it do? In the short term, they don't have to do much because most of its revenue is derived from these cable contracts where Fox News earns as much as $2 per subscriber. The only more lucrative channel on cable TV is ESPN. I think the long term, as the cable TV industry as a whole is in decline, it's going to come under increasing pressure. And I think it's going to be up to the next generation of Murdochs to try to figure out a way to modernize Fox News to position it for either a post-cable TV culture or potentially a post-Donald Trump culture. And I know from my sources inside the company that James Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's younger son, is very intent on trying to steer Fox News in a more moderate center-right direction, less of a you know, bombastic circus. A dangerous strategy. It is a risky one, yes. Is this story really about something bigger than Bill O'Reilly sexually harassing women and then getting fired when the cases become too numerous and too hard to cover up? Is it possible we're reading too much into this? I argue, actually, it's a much bigger story than Bill O'Reilly. This is a function of a culture that Roger Ailes built over 20 years that was a cult of personality structured like a political campaign in the guise of a news organization. And Bill O'Reilly thrived in that. But it was a culture where women were uh, subjected to serial harassment. If you spoke up about it, you were railroaded out of the company. You know, the legal, the HR, and the public relations departments were all extensions of Ailes's power. And so this story is about the slow motion unwinding of that culture that both made Fox News so successful, but at the same time did so much damage to so many people, including, I would argue, the fabric of you know, the American political discourse. Do you think, as some have suggested, that Fox paved the way for Trump? Because I'm very suspicious of that. I think Fox was able to channel, heat up, an environment that was already incredibly polarized. What do you think? Well, I think without question, I don't say it's just limited to Fox News, but I think Roger Ailes did a lot to till the ground for Donald Trump's rise, making the whole notion of truth subject to debate, turning news into combat sport and turning offensive speech into a debate over political correctness gleefully sticking your thumb in the eye of the establishment. You know, we should point out that Roger Ailes was Rush Limbaugh's executive producer during his short stint in television. And he understood that there was this audience that wanted news rather than, you know, informing them, wanted to be their voice and their weapon to wage ideological war with their opponents. And using politics and entertainment as tools to advance a conservative agenda is what Donald Trump, you know, did so brilliantly. Starting on Fox yes. with his campaign about Obama's citizenship. People have birth certificates. He doesn't have a birth certificate. Now, he may have one, but there's something on that birth, maybe religion, maybe it says he's a Muslim. I don't know. And if you listen to Donald Trump's stump speeches, he could have stepped into any of those Fox News host chair and probably delivered a bigger audience. It's very different than the old Bill Buckley National Review, erudite George Will style conservatism that in many ways was the movement of the Ronald Reagan years. There was fringe 
and very extremist elements of the right wing. But again, they were marginalized in kind of newsletters and talk radio and carnival barkers. Here you had Fox News wired into as many as 100 million homes pumping conspiracy theories and extreme right-wing uh, messaging into Americans' homes every night. You do that for 20 years, you get to a point where Donald Trump runs for president and questioning things that are objectively verifiable all of a sudden doesn't seem so crazy. Gabriel, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Gabriel Sherman is national affairs editor at New York Magazine and author of The Loudest Voice in the Room, How the Brilliant Bombastic Roger Ailes Built Fox News and Divided a Country. Coming up, the headlines proclaim that tensions with North Korea have brought us to a dangerous pass. But is it true? This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Last month on this program, we heard that despite the alarming headlines about confrontation with North Korea, it was much ado about the usual empty threats. And you know what? Once we get past all the rhetoric, both sides believe each other, which is why we haven't started a war. Deterrence rests on some pretty horrific consequences. But the fact is, deterrence has worked for almost 70 years now. That was David Kong, director of the University of Southern California's Korean Studies Institute. He did talk us down, but the intervening four weeks haven't been too reassuring. Our self-proclaimed non-interventionist president has fired missiles at Syria and dropped the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan. Both President Trump and Kim Jong-un are notoriously erratic, and the rhetoric is only growing more bellicose. Here's Vice President Pence. We will defeat any attack, and we will meet any use of conventional or nuclear weapons with an overwhelming and effective response. The era of strategic patience is over. And then this. A new propaganda video from North Korea shows a U.S. aircraft carrier being blown up. Is it hinting at something U.S. military planners actually need to worry about? A North Korean military parade featured videos of missiles engulfing the United States in a giant fireball of doom. Uh, Professor Kang, you sure? Nothing to see here, right? Absolutely. Any American president who thinks about striking North Korea first has to ask one question. Will North Korea respond? Every American president, and this one as well, I'm quite sure, is going to conclude that yes, they will. So it's kind of like the mutually assured destruction doctrine on a slightly smaller scale. We're not envisioning necessarily World War III, but hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths that nobody wants to be responsible for. That's why the deterrence has worked. It's not bluster, which means something insincere or just fake. This is signaling by both sides, and both sides believe each other. But what about Trump? We know how erratic he is. Should we not worry that he won't do something irretrievably stupid? <laughs> I'm no psychologist, but I will say that of what I see of the Trump administration, I don't see an inability to calculate costs and benefits. Even if we never talk about any kind of nuclear attack, there are those megatons of conventional artillery aimed right at Seoul, where I think there are 20 million people. A cornered rat North Korean regime can kill 20 million people in an hour. Absolutely. Which is why we don't preempt them. The equation on the Korean Peninsula is so stark. 
There are 28,000 American troops stationed in South Korea that are directly vulnerable to North Korean attack today. Kim Jong-un can't hit the United States, but he can hit those 28,000 troops and literally millions of Koreans. So the costs and the risks are glaringly obvious. And everything I can see about President Trump and his senior advisors are that they understand these risks. It is not like Syria or Afghanistan where they can't hit us back. Now, you've said that South Koreans aren't nearly as alarmed about this situation and haven't been whipped into a similar kind of media-fueled frenzy. Why? South Koreans live with this every day. They have much better knowledge of what's actually going on on the peninsula. If you're under the age of 64, you have grown up with this your entire life. The North Korean military parades occur on an annual basis. American and South Korean military exercises occur on an annual basis. They see this all the time. That doesn't mean it's not horrifically dangerous, but in some ways, it's less dangerous than it was. One thing that's different from when I was growing up in the 1980s is that the conventional threat of North Korean military invasion over the border is much less than it was 30 years ago. As North Korea has grown poorer, their military is no longer the kind of fighting force that it used to be. They don't have the spare parts. They don't have the equipment and the training. So it's huge and it's dangerous. But the South has become so much more powerful and so much richer than North Korea that that threat has largely diminished. And some stories were kind of lulled into complacency by the boy who cried wolf syndrome. Yet the... North Korea's story seems to get us freshly panicked every single time. What explains that? This isn't the boy that cried wolf. This is the chicken little syndrome. The sky is falling. I think in some ways it's because North Korea does not help itself in terms of being understood. It is a dictatorial regime that spouts old, outdated, Cold War communist rhetoric. They look strange. It's hard to understand unless you really know what's going on. I think the second reason is that in the United States, we don't tend to pay attention until the media talks about an aircraft carrier and a potential preemptive strike. And so we can't put it in context the same way that in South Korea they can. We don't watch the other, let's call it, 11 months a year when it's essentially business as usual. If you live in Korea or if you watch it all the time, like me, you have 11 months of business as usual, and then you have a cycle where there's some provocations and the U.S. and North Korea beat their chests and shake their fists. Then we go back to the other part of the cycle. Dave, once again, thank you. My pleasure, anytime. Dave Kong is a professor of international relations and business at the University of Southern California and the director of USC's Korean Studies Institute. Of course, China is intimately connected with the goings-on in its neighbor, North Korea. We checked in with Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SupChina.com and co-host of its Sinica podcast, to see if the reporting in China reflects a worsening situation. I would say that it is a little bit worse. The number of incidents, missile tests, statements coming from Donald Trump, statements coming from the North Korean propaganda organizations. You know, there was a military parade last weekend in Pyongyang. There's always a military parade, and there's always ominous rumblings coming from the U.S., and there are always tests happening in North Korea. So what is it that puts this in a slightly different category? Donald Trump himself, who is very unpredictable. And the Chinese government, I think, has been <laughs> scratching its collective head about how to deal with him when it comes to all issues, you know, ranging from trade to North Korea. Two wild cards instead of one? Yeah. And you do see that comparison certainly made in Chinese social media of Kim Jong-un, they, they call in China, the slang name for him is Little Fatty the Third, uh, Jin San Pang, <laughs> because he's the third Kim in charge of North Korea. You see unflattering comparisons made between the two of them. You know, they're both brats who are unpredictable. But in fact, China has the most to lose if something goes wrong in North Korea. The big fear is instability will lead to a wave of refugees 
The other fear is that war in the Korean Peninsula could lead to a unified Korea, which would mean that the United States has military bases bordering China in the Korean Peninsula. Obviously, if there's some kind of nuclear confrontation, China has a lot more to lose than the United States. But there does seem to be less worry in China about it than you find in the United States. Hmm. Interesting. I I grew up in South Africa. I lived in China for 20 years, and I moved to the United States at a time when people were complaining about how bad the economy was. And I'm shocked by how nice life is for most people in the United States. So they have a lot of luxury to worry about things. Whereas for most Chinese people, I mean, you know, people born in the 70s or earlier remember being hungry as children. People who now are, are middle class, who take vacations to Los Angeles and Tokyo, remember being hungry as kids. Certainly for the people who make a fuss in the media and on the internet about North Korea, most of them are very well fed, have been their whole lives. And I think when the whole country has really just emerged from its own national trauma, not only poverty and hunger, but you know the Cultural Revolution and the various disasters that China has lived through throughout most of the 20th century, it takes a little bit more than the possible fear of a possible war between two other countries to really make people jittery. Even if it's right next door? Even if it's right next door. I mean, that's not to say people aren't worried, but you don't have the same levels of, dare I say, hysteria that you sometimes find in the U.S. media. Mm-hmm. Because hysteria sells. It does sell. I mean, the Chinese media and internet is highly controlled and censored. And one of the few times when I find myself thinking that maybe censorship isn't so bad after all is, for example, after terrorist incidents in China, the media coverage is really, really muted. And I can't help but think that it's not necessarily a bad thing because you're not glamorizing the violence, you're not glamorizing the perpetrators, and you're not making the populace fearful. Whereas when you have a free media and a for-profit media, terrorizing the population, making them fearful, glamorizing the perpetrators and their acts that gets you viewers and readers. China has long had a friendly relationship with North Korea, if complex. They're not eager to criticize North Korea or its leadership. What about America's current political leadership? I would say the state media has been very, very restrained in its commentary on Trump. There are occasional editorial pieces, particularly in non-central state media, newspapers like the Global Times, which are state-owned but have a longer leash. So you do see opinion pieces, sometimes very critical of Trump, sometimes in praise of Trump. But generally speaking, the tone has been very restrained, particularly when he has tweeted inflammatory things about China Uh, the response has been very, very muted. I think when it comes to the central state media, there have been very clear instructions from above to put a lid on the commentary because the belief is that no good can come out of offending Trump, whereas it's quite clear that saying nice things about him can get you results. Can you give me some examples of how Trump is typically criticized and how he is typically praised? He's criticized for being inexperienced in politics and diplomacy, for not understanding the world, for nepotism and corruption. China Central TV a couple of weeks ago did a little segment commenting on discussion of nepotism because of Jared Kushner's role in the White House. But isn't there a kind of... Ivanka fever there, Ivanka way, I think it's called. Yeah, Ivanka Rua. There is an Ivanka fever and there's a Trump fever for sure. People who praise him for being a successful, bold businessman. People who think his daughter is, you know, a blonde goddess and also good at business. In Foreign Policy magazine, there was an article that discussed this love of Ivanka And the magazine suggested that it was a symptom of, and I'm quoting here, the convergence of the kleptocratic nepotistic trends in Chinese elite circles with the same tendencies here. I think definitely what the Trumps have brought into the Chinese consciousness is a very real realization that America is not that different from China. Why is being a businessman such a plus in China? 
Well, it's kind of like America, really, isn't it? You know, I moved to train in 1995, and at that time, many of my Chinese friends considered their idol to be Bill Gates. You have a lot of people who really admire Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, and of course, all the Chinese business successes, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, Robin Lee, the founder of Baidu. These people are heroes to a lot of Chinese people, and so is Trump. You were saying that Chinese officials are scratching their heads a bit about Trump. On the one hand, he's incredibly unpredictable. On the other hand, it seems like only a 10-minute conversation can clarify matters for the American president to the extent that he limits his pressure on China after having campaigned on it. I think part of the Chinese government's calculus is that one of the benefits of having Trump as president of the United States is that they won't get such a hard time about human rights and that they will be able to deal with him in a transactional way much more than they have been able to with previous administrations. And people in China have seen some evidence that this is going to be the case because of the fact that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson did not personally really involve himself in the report on global human rights that was issued by the State Department earlier this year, whereas previous secretaries of state have announced them and discussed them. So I'm going to assume that the Chinese like Trump more after the election than they did before. I don't think it's that simple. Before the election, a lot of Chinese, including people in the government, thought that because he is a businessman, we will be able to find a way to deal with him. And I think you've seen them try to find ways of dealing with him, such as the interesting and slightly mysterious speedy approvals of various trademarks for him and his family. And, you know, as someone who's tried to register trademarks in China before, you know, the idea that this was completely normal procedure is absolutely absurd. You know, decisions were made to greenlight trademark approvals. And I think that's a sign of the idea in the Chinese government that if we treat him nicely in a business way, we'll be able to talk to him and we'll be able to get good results. After the election, I don't think that idea has gone away at all. But I think perhaps ordinary people, people on social media, people in the government, have realized that what seemed to be unpredictable is, in fact, quite unpredictable. And even if he has a transactional personality, it doesn't mean that you know how to do a transaction with him. Jeremy Goldcorn is editor-in-chief of SupChina.com and co-host of its Sinica, S-I-N-I-C-A, podcast. Churchill once said that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And that may well be how the Chinese view Donald Trump. And this may actually be aiding his foreign policy, at least for now. Fred Kaplan, War Stories columnist for Slate, and as close listeners will already know, Brooks' husband, says that Trump's unpredictability bears some resemblance to the madman theory, a strategy employed by Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War. Shortly after Richard Nixon became president and there were peace talks going on in Paris about the Vietnam War, he told Henry Kissinger, listen, Henry, go to Paris and tell them that this guy Nixon is crazy. He's obsessed with communism. When he gets angry, we can't control him. And you know, he has the finger on the nuclear button. And he said, Ho Chi Minh himself will come begging for peace in two or three days. So this was a bluff based on his own reputation for being erratic, maybe even paranoid. He tried to use this as leverage in the Paris peace talks, but the other side didn't buy it because even Nixon to Ho Chi Minh wasn't that off his rocker. Right. It didn't work. <laughs> the North Vietnamese didn't believe it. You know, Nixon had been around for a long time, and regardless of his other foibles and eccentricities, he'd shown no sign of being crazy in that regard. Nixon wasn't really exactly a madman. Some people have said that Trump is benefiting from exactly the kind of uncertainty that Nixon was trying to cultivate. How so? My guess is that Trump has never heard of the madman theory. I don't think that what he's doing is strategically thought out. But in the eyes of many people, including foreign leaders, he seems to be genuinely erratic, unpredictable. And so the irony is that 
maybe this is actually having some effect, the kind of effect that Nixon hoped would work on North Vietnam. But for real, there are some signs that China is putting a little bit of pressure on North Korea. North Korea, maybe Russia are thinking, we don't know what this guy is going to do. Maybe we should be a little cautious. So let's just say that Trump is the accidental beneficiary of uncertainty uh, along madman theory lines. You say that this benefit does not last forever. For example, let's take Syria. Trump launches 59 cruise missiles at an airbase in Syria. What happened the very next day? Syria launched an airstrike on a neighboring village from planes taking off from that very airbase. More than that, Trump didn't follow up. There haven't been more attacks. There hasn't been the opening of a diplomatic avenue. Trump didn't follow up because he doesn't even know that you need to follow up. Nixon at least had a strategy. It was based on a flawed premise. But if it had worked, he knew what to do afterward. You know, there was a nuclear strategist in the early 60s named Herman Kahn, very voluble character. And he put it this way. You know, the game of highway chicken where two cars zoom toward each other and they play a game of who's going to veer off the road first. Rebel without a cause, James Dean. That's right. So Herman Kahn said, well, imagine that one of these drivers very visibly unscrews the steering wheel from the dashboard and throws it out the window thereby forcing the other driver to pull off the road because that driver can't pull off. And so the other actor is forced to be a rational player. Donald Trump is the guy who's thrown the steering wheel out the window, possibly without even knowing what a steering wheel does, <laughs> thereby forcing China or whatever to be rational. Now, the problem is this. The entire Kim family, including its latest scion, Kim Jong-un, they've been playing this game for a long, long time. They're kind of masters at it. And Kim Jong-un, he's interested in one thing, the survival of his regime. He's been doing this, and his father and grandfather did this by playing larger powers off one another. And he's been doing it with the rational knowledge that these guys really aren't going to attack me. Kim Jong-un knows this. So his question, the question that's going through his mind and the mind of the president of China is, does this guy Donald Trump understand the rules of the game by which we've all been playing these years? Maybe he doesn't, and maybe, therefore, North Korea has to be less provocative, China has to do more to bring them under control. Again, this might work for a little while, but not for very long. In the meantime, what happens with our allies? They're looking and they're saying, this guy, I don't know what he's up to, Therefore, I'd better be making alternative arrangements for my security. In the case of countries like the Baltic, small countries near the Russian border, maybe I need to start carving out a deal with Russia. Countries in the Pacific, well, gee, I need to start making trade arrangements with China. Our influence and power comes in large part from our guaranteeing security to allies, from being reliable. If we start acting according to a madman theory, we're going to lose the trust of others. They're going to go elsewhere. We're going to become less powerful. Fred, I want to ask you about trajectory. One possibility, I guess, if the scenario is as you've described, is that the president will suffer a string of diplomatic and military failures, more or less paralleling his track record thus far legislatively. Another possibility is that this game of chicken puts him in a position where he is cornered and realizes that the world is calling his bluff, then something really bad happens. That's the dangerous thing about bluffs. The other guy calls it, and then you have a choice to make. He has been tweeting, we will ask China to bring the North Koreans under their control. If they can't do it, we will, exclamation point. USA. This, quite correctly, makes a lot of people nervous, and not just the people that he's trying to make nervous. Now, it's interesting. The people in his administration have been sending kind of counter-messages. James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, he's said things like, we will work with our allies. And everybody in the region realizes, okay, whew, because the allies aren't going to go for this at all. H.R. McMaster, as National Security Advisor, said the other day, we hope to apply as much pressure as we can short of war. 
That's a signal to the allies mainly. But at the same time, it's a signal to the adversaries that Trump is trying to influence. And is it a signal to the president himself? This is what really has to be said. He watches a lot of television. Anytime you see one of his officials on television saying something, you should keep in mind that he is saying it as much to President Trump as to the American people. That's why the messages are so mixed. His advisors are lobbying the president through the medium of television. And by the way, foreign leaders are lobbying him too. One thing that any foreign leader has now realized simply by watching is that if you sit down with this guy and you treat him with respect, you can gain some influence. I mean, look at President Xi, the president of China. A few weeks ago, Donald Trump said that he was raping the United States through his trade deals. Now he says, this guy Xi is a terrific fellow. And so she tells him, oh, you know, there's only so much influence I have over North Korea. And by the way, you know, Korea, that used to be part of China. And Trump repeats this in an interview with Fox and the people in South Korea go nuts because this is kind of an old Chinese myth, which is designed to delegitimize the sovereignty of South Korea. And everybody in Asia must now be thinking, In the next conversation, is Xi going to tell Trump why China has rightful ownership over the entire South China Sea? And is that going to have an influence on U.S. policy? We've discussed the game of chicken and madmen. I think the scariest way of looking at this at all may be just ad hoc. A president of the United States and his administration just kind of making it up as they go along. Yeah, I think that is what's going on. Even some of his most cherished campaign principles. For example, saying that first day I'm going to call China a currency manipulator. Then he says, well, it turns out, gee, who knew that they're not really manipulating currency? I'm going to get rid of this Iran nuclear deal, the worst deal ever negotiated. Secretary Tillerson submits his required report the other day saying that Iran has abided by all the terms of the nuclear deal. So, yeah, we should probably hang on to it. NAFTA. That's another one. And he's now proposing some modest changes to NAFTA. Healthcare. Yeah, well, it turns out healthcare is a lot more complicated than anybody knew. <laughs> some issues are difficult, some are even intractable. Some of these deals are actually not bad compared with the alternative. Maybe he'll gain wisdom from this over the next couple of years, maybe not. Fred, thank you very much. Thank you. Fred Kaplan is the War Stories columnist for Slate and the author of, most recently, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Coming up, referendums dominate the headlines and inspire arguments. Can democracy handle this much democracy? This is on the media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last weekend, we heard about a referendum in Turkey in which, according to the government, a slim majority voted to change its democracy. Turkey's President Erdogan narrowly wins the referendum, which will vastly increase his powers. He says constitutional changes will now go ahead. 
Actually, the past year has been chock-a-block with examples of the public weighing in on fundamental questions related to governance and justice and even national identity, ranging from a peace deal in Colombia to Brexit to a newly proposed constitution in Thailand to a vote in Hungary on migrant quotas. In fact, the word referendum is very much in vogue, meaning everything from a binding vote to a non-binding opinion poll to a harbinger of how the public feels about Trump based on the results of a local election, like in the vote this week in a conservative district of Georgia, which saw Democrat John Ossoff come in first among 18 candidates. This election tomorrow is a referendum on President Trump. The vote resulted in a runoff, but the press had already decided it was a referendum, metaphorically. Meanwhile, real referendums increasingly are held on issues large and small, and the pundits can't decide if that's a good thing or not. Matt Kvortrup is a professor of applied political science and international relations at Coventry University in the UK. He's also the author of the book Referendums and Ethnic Conflict and editor of an essay collection on referendums around the world. Matt, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So, what's a referendum? A referendum is basically when politicians ask the people for their opinion or, in other circumstances, when the people demand to have a say on a law or a policy. Do you gather enough names on a petition? Petitions, yes. Berlusconi, the former prime minister of Italy, was actually ousted after a referendum. He had passed a law that said that the head of state could not go to court. He had immunity from prosecution. Then the people of Italy, or 500,000 of them, gathered the required signatures, and then there was a referendum on that law. 95% of the people voted for the repeal, and as a result of that intervention by the people, Mr. Berlusconi was ousted. So you can have quite dramatic consequences of having the right to call a referendum. Does a referendum have to be binding? Well, referendums tend to be binding. Then in some countries, for example, my own country, Britain, where we don't even have a constitution because we like to be a little bit odd, they're always unbinding. But the politicians don't really dare to go against the will of the people. Mm -hmm. So therefore, in practice, it's always binding. If you sort of want to be political sciency about it, it's often the case that you make a distinction between a plebiscite and a referendum. In general, a plebiscite is a vote that is held in a dictatorship. So, for example, Hitler would ask people on various policies and then 99.9% would vote yes to it. Uh, and he would probably himself call it a referendum. But among people's experts, we call that a plebiscite because mm -hmm. we know the result is a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. So when were they first held and what purpose did they serve? The first time it was called a referendum was in the 15th century in Switzerland, in Davos, which is now the place where the rich and famous meet every January. And in that time, it was decided that major decisions by the local council had to be put to a vote because you couldn't pass legislation that was really, really important without actually making sure that the people were happy with it. Switzerland was probably the only country at that time that was anything approaching a democracy. But if you want to go back even further, the Romans actually had referendums. So it's an idea that has been around as long as people have been thinking about democracy. Now, you've written that in Europe, they came to prominence as a political tool in the mid-19th century when monarchies seemed to be losing power. You draw attention to the tumultuous year of 1848, and you quote the French politician Alexander-Auguste Ledru Rollin, who said, There go the people. I must follow them, for I am their leader. <laughs> yes, and that is one of those sort of paradoxical things. You might have thought that he'd had a focus group that had been conducting polling a little bit prematurely. <laughs> the idea at that time was that you don't have power given to you by God you have to make sure that the people are happy with you. And it's been then a steady growth ever since. And it's interesting that at that time, or shortly after, a guy who was known to be quite flamboyant, who had very populist policies, he was called Napoleon III, he was the nephew of the real Napoleon, if you like, came to power. And he was seen as a bit of a, a Donald Trump of his age. 
And he would often follow that particular slogan and then go to the people and make sure that he was loved by the people in referendums. The problem about Napoleon III's referendum was that they were hardly fair. In most cases, the ballot paper would just say, oui, that means yes. <laughs> and there wasn't really much of a choice there. So they're probably in the category of what we would call plebiscites. Now, the reason why we're taking on this issue is because the perception of referendums seems to be undergoing a change, or at least there's a lot of conflict about it. People see them as frequently a tool ostensibly designed to take the pulse of the people, but really used to erode democracy and strengthen the power of demagogues and dictators. We saw some of this argument going back to the 20th century after Hitler essentially gave the referendum a bad name. Well, Hitler held, I think, altogether four referendums. One of the referendums was whether to have unification between Germany and Austria, and predictably, he won by 99% of the vote. <laughs> Nobody wins by 99% of the vote. No, and of course, you read the vote, and they had a bit of a surplus of votes, it turned out, because they had printed the ballot papers beforehand. <laughs> And people who were in concentration camps were also forced to vote for Hitler. And we have meticulous details about how they engineered these votes. Those fake referendums, or plebiscites rather, were hardly fair at all. You have those sorts of referenda all through the 70s. Gaddafi held them, Castro, Augusto Pinochet held one in 1978. Also nowadays... Saddam Hussein, two months before he was ousted by the coalition, had a referendum on some policy changes in Iraq, and he won by 100%. So 100% of the Sunnis, the Shias, the Kurds, all voted for Saddam Hussein, officially. So I think in a dictatorship, a plebiscite is not really about finding out what people think. It's more about sending a signal that you're able to completely control the process and everybody will turn out to vote. And then people will sort of jump from that to saying, well, therefore, referendums must be a bad idea. But I think it's important we make the distinction between plebiscites and referendums because in countries that are moderately democratic even, or countries that are fully democratic, they can sometimes backfire. So in the 1980s, when the power of Pinochet had been loosened... Augusto Pinochet, the dictator of Chile. Yes, he actually lost a referendum because he didn't bother to rig the vote sufficiently well. And, and you have a great example of Charles de Gaulle in 1969. <laughs> yes, Charles de Gaulle is one of my favorite examples where he campaigned on the slogan, Me or Chaos?, and the French overwhelmingly voted for chaos, uh, which, of course, didn't happen. Uh, he wanted to abolish pretty much the Senate, which is a rather draconian measure. So clearly, sometimes this seemingly most democratic of tools is used to erode democracy, but not always. No, and I think also when we talk about eroding democracy, I mean, we still have presidential elections. The fact that Stalin and Mussolini had presidential elections that were rigged does not mean that we are now against representative democracy. At some level, you could say, well, Erdogan was not actually strengthened by this referendum. The president of Turkey. Yes, he could have forced it through without a referendum, just saying, you know, I'm elected president, I'm with the people. And in this case, he held a referendum. It turns out now that he does not have a majority in the capital. He doesn't have a majority in the largest city, Istanbul. And therefore, what was supposed to be a vote by acclamation that would show what a strong leader he was, He's now weak. So what are the conditions in which referendums work the way they are supposed to? Well, what is important in a referendum is that the people are given the opportunity to, to actually debate the issue. California is a wonderful example. Now, you've sometimes had issues on the ballot in California where people have debated the pros and the cons and have come to a sensible conclusion about that. Last election, there was a referendum on the death penalty. In Britain, in the Brexit referendum, people arguably knew what they were voting for. Obviously, people don't become experts sort of walking, talking encyclopedias of political economy and law and so on. But the voters in Britain were certainly as well informed as they would be in parliamentary elections. There was a lot of commentary after the Brexit vote that British voters are systematically ignorant 
But you've suggested that in cases where liberalism won out, for instance, the vote on legalizing gay marriage in Ireland in 2015, or when a majority of Hungarians boycotted Viktor Orban's anti-immigrant referendum in October, rendering the result void, that the commentators don't come out and decry those referendums. In Britain in particular, much of the liberal media were saying, well, the people couldn't possibly have an opinion about Brexit. And the same media felt that the so-called recently ignorant people were incredibly enlightened when they voted against Scottish independence. So there is an element of wanting the rules that suit your political philosophy, which is probably a natural thing. The question is, fundamentally, do referendums hurt democracy or do they merely reflect the democracy that they're held in? I think to a degree they reflect the democracy they're held in, but I actually think they strengthen democracy. It's fundamental in politics that you are divided into camps, but referendums allow people to support one particular party and then disagree with them on certain other issues. Referendums allow for different constellations of politics. What we've seen in this country was a lot of people were not great fans of David Cameron, the Conservative Prime Minister we used to have, but a lot of people who were of a different philosophical persuasion agreed with him on Europe and therefore suddenly realized that he probably wasn't such a bad person after all. So what would appear to be a very polarizing issue actually allowed people to team up with people they normally would be opposed to. Democracy is a system that thrives on disgruntled people. You call this institutionalized grumpiness? Yes, and I think institutionalized grumpiness is a wonderful thing. Democracy is very much about holding politicians to account. And if they fear that if they don't do a really good job, the people will vote them down, well, then that's a good thing. But in order for that to happen, we shouldn't deplete people's civic reserves. And for that reason, uh, we should probably limit referendums to the really important issues where they can come out and show their disgruntledness. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Matt Kvortrup is Professor of Applied Political Science and International Relations at Coventry University in the UK. He's also the author of the book Referendums and Ethnic Conflict and editor of an essay collection called Referendums Around the World. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Lowinger. We had more help from Sara Kari, Leah Feder, and Kate Bakhtiarova. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Terrence Bernardo and Sam Baer. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Support for On the Media comes from the Overbrook Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.